who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we thank you. Thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for this time of year in which we are focused upon Christ's coming in human flesh. We pray, Father, that you would teach us this morning that the Spirit of God would do a mighty work within us to change us, to stir in us the joy in the Lord. Father, bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, amen. Please be seated. And this is a familiar passage of Scripture. It's one that um, we're very uh, aware of, especially when speaking of the incarnation of Christ. But it is also one that is that is needful uh, for us to work our way back through again. And we will work our way through this probably a little quicker than what we normally do. I don't want to take up too much of your time today, but we do want to give our attention because this is the time of worship unto the Lord. That's the whole focus of today. And so we want to give the Lord a due time. So the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. He's expressing to the church how they need to be selfless towards one another. They need to serve one another. They need to look after each other's interests. They need to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, as he says earlier in the chapter. He's basically telling them to walk in humility. Be humble. Now, this is something to express to each other. Uh, that's something that we know. Be humble. You need to be humble. You don't need to be prideful. You don't need to be arrogant. You need to be humble. Well, it doesn't really help us just to tell that to one another if we don't express how do we cultivate that. How is that cultivated in our hearts to walk humbly before each other and serve one another and love one another as we should? So the Apostle Paul, in light of that potential question, as he is expressing all this to the church of Philippi, their, their question probably may have been, how do we do that? <clears throat> it's one thing to tell yourself, I need to be humble, but how do we do that? And so he gives the greatest example, the greatest example in all of history of the one who walked humbly while he was here. And that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the point of this is, is that if Christ himself, who is the highly exalted one, the one who, as, as the scriptures have told us a number of times in speaking of uh, the, his existence beforehand, that he is our only sovereign. He is the one who dwells in unapproachable light. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the holy one. He's the thrice holy God. All of that. If you consider the greatest in existence is God himself. And he being the second person of the Trinity. The son of God. 
can humble himself, condescend to our level, and take on human flesh, if he can do that, being the greatest among all, then that's our example to follow. That's how we cultivate that is to reflect upon him, his majesty, his glory. That's something else that we talk about, especially as we were working our way through the Gospel of John. When we get to John chapter 13 and you have the Last Supper, it was Jesus that got up, girded himself, and began to wash the disciples' feet. The very task of a, of a menial task of the lowest of slaves and it's the greatest among them that gets up and he, he washes their feet. He humbled himself the exalted one. And that's our basis for walking humbly. But look at what he says about this, though. He talks about Christ being the holy God from all eternity. That's what's in view here. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, and that's that word morphe, where we get, you know, well, you know what the word is. You can morph into this, morph into that, etc., did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to. And what is in view is that he, in the reality of his being, before his incarnation, that's what's in view. Before his incarnation, he, was, he existed in the form of God, and that's talking about the essential qualities, the essential being, the essential nature of who God is, along with the Father and along with the Holy Spirit from all eternity sitting on his exalted cosmic throne, ruling and reigning, having that intimate fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the perfect fellowship, perfect love, perfect communion, etc. That's, that's speaking of Christ himself, his eternality, his equality with God himself, as Christ is co-equal one, the co-existent one. He is not lesser than the Father. He's not lesser than the Holy Spirit. That's Paul's point. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And this, this figure of speech, as one writer says, this figure of speech means that something desirable was already possessed by him, but that Christ did not exploit it for personal gain. He was not trying to become anything greater by doing what he did, is the point. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, to exploit it for his own gain. And that speaks something of, 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 his, of his character itself. You know, any time that we volunteer for something, well, not any time, but we have to be careful, and we see this, that often when people volunteer for something, or they take responsibility for something, or they, they perform this certain task, Oftentimes, they're doing it in order to elevate themselves to something else. They want to do this in order that they can look good for everybody else and perhaps get this position or whatever the case may be. And what Paul is saying is that's not true of Christ. He's the exalted God. What greater can you get? And so the point is, is that what he is referring to in Christ's preexistence is not to exploit it for his personal gain, but it is, it is going to be for the benefit of his people. That's the point. He does not exercise his deity at the expense of his people, but rather he exercises his divine prerogatives for the benefit of his church. That's what's in view. Everything he does, everything the Godhead does, is going to be an extension of divine love and divine grace toward their creation. 
That's what's in view. He existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But look at what he did. He says, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. This is what's in view when you're talking about the baby in a manger and Christ coming in the flesh and all of that. What is he doing? He emptied emptied himself. He did not empty himself of deity. He did not stop becoming God. But the point of what Paul is saying is that he adds humanity to his being. He took upon himself a human nature. As we talked about last Lord's Day, when we're talking about Christ and his humanity, that Christ is truly man, meaning he is body and soul, united to his divine nature, not becoming confused or intermingled or mixed or any of that, but both retaining their specific properties, that in his divinity he is absolutely the omnipotent, glorious, omniscient God, etc. In his humanity he is limited in knowledge, he feels pain, Everything that it is to be man, he experiences. He adds humanity. His own creation, the very thing that he creates, he takes the form of his creation. He takes the form, as Paul says, of a bondservant. Christ did not come to be king in the sense in which, which we really consider kings to be. They're the ones who lord over everybody else. They're the ones who give the commands, all of this. Well, the Apostle Paul says that Christ came as a bondservant. He came, he came to serve. He came under the lordship of another. That's, that's what he's talking about. He emptied himself of his divine prerogatives of, of ruling and reigning on his cosmic throne, and he takes the form of a servant. He condescends to our level, and he takes the form of a servant. He's obedient to another's will, something that had never happened in his existence prior to this. He willingly embraced this state of humiliation and became obedient unto death, as he says, even the death on the cross. This is what he means by he emptied himself. Emptied himself of his divine rights, prerogatives, so that everything that he does as a man is under the lordship of his father. He doesn't take upon himself whatever, if if he wanted to do this or he wants to do that, he's only going to do what the father's will is. That's why when Satan tempts him in the wilderness, and he says, basically, paraphrasing, you're the son of God. Why, why, Why are you hungry? You shouldn't be hungry. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? Eat. Was it sinful for Christ to turn the stones into bread and to feed himself? Not necessarily. There's nothing sinful in it, but it was not according to the will of his father, and therefore he did not take his own initiative to do something. He did only what the father had commanded him to do. Our only sovereign, the master. You know, when you're looking in Isaiah 6, and you see that glorious vision of of Christ himself sitting on the throne and the train of his robe filling the temple, seraphim flying around crying out holy 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 
He is called by the highest exalted title of God in that particular text of scripture, which is Adonai. That he is the master. He is the sovereign. And the master and the sovereign takes the form of man and becomes obedient to another. And he willingly takes upon himself that humiliation. He willingly takes upon himself the very nature of man. Everything pertaining to the properties of man, what it is to be human, the very essence of man, this is what it is. He's not just a human shell with a divine mind. He is truly man. Body and soul united to his divinity. Out of the triune God's great love, Christ takes the form of man to die in his place because man is the one that owes the debt to the Lord. He suffered as a man. Everything that it is to suffer in this life, whether it's pertaining to people outside of us who cause us trouble and cause us pain, he dwelt among sinners. Of course, he, he endured that pain of what it is to, to dwell with his own creation. All the pain of living among sinners and the pain of dying an excruciating death by their hands. He knew what it was to be truly man, and that's why the writer of Hebrews says, we have such a great high priest who knows the feeling of our infirmities. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. How can we say that if he was just a body with a divine mind? But according to scripture, he was truly man. He grew in knowledge. In his humanity and speaking only to his humanity, there were things that he didn't know. You know, we often talk about the woman with the issue of blood who reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And she's healed immediately and Christ stops because he feels the power go from him. And he turns around and says, who touched me? Now, we often hear that perhaps as Christ saying that, giving an identification to the woman that he knew that she touched him. But being in a crowd of people, he's probably very well saying, who touched me? Because he didn't know. Because in his humanity, he grew in wisdom and in knowledge and in favor with God and men, as the writer of, uh, well, the Gospel of Luke says. He learned things. Unless it was communicated to his human nature by the divine nature, he could honestly say he did not know something. Everything that it is to be man, he knew what it was. And that's why when it comes to all your pain and all your sorrow, all your trials and all your tribulations, all your ailments, all your sicknesses and all of that, that you can come before Christ himself and he knows the feeling of our infirmities. That's why he's our great high priest because he knows and he can sympathize as our great high priest. And this is all bundled up in, in the fact that he becomes man. The very thing that's presented to us around Christmas time, the baby in a manger, Christ the incarnate God, this is what's in view. He's going to live like a man. He's going to endure pain like a man. The very thing that set him apart, of course, is him being God in the flesh and without sin. So he humbles himself. He becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That it is on the cross that he allows his own creation 
to handle him, to beat him, to spit on him, to rip out his beard, and all the things that we've been going over for the past number of weeks, he allowed himself to be handled in such a way because the point of his incarnation and him coming into the world was to get to the cross. That's where he had to go. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 22, speaking of Christ himself, I am a worm and not a man. He's a worm who allows himself to be crushed, to be handled by his own creation, even to the point of death, so that on the cross that the Father pours out his intense wrath upon his Son in order that the Son, who is truly human and truly divine, would be able to satisfy the justice of God. He is our perfect mediator. You have to have, when when you're bringing two parties together, you have to have a representative of both. And that's why he's truly God. And he's truly man. And that through him and in him, in in his flesh, in his giving of himself, his sacrifice, that he can unite and reconcile man back to God. And one man said he came as God because only God had the power to save. He came as man because man owed the debt. He became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. He finished his work. That was the whole point of him coming. But here's here's some amazing things to consider that as a result of that, he says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now this this title, or or rather this phrase, being highly exalted... This is uh, the same phrase is, is in Exodus chapter 15. When you have the Lord that delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, and then he delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh by crossing the Red Sea, they sang the song of Moses. In the song of Moses, it says, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. As he delivered them from Egypt, from the iron furnace, he redeemed them, as he says in chapter 20 of Exodus. You have the saints that sing the song of Moses in the book of Revelation because they have been redeemed from the earth. The Lord had highly exalted him. It means to raise to the highest position that he is the most high over all creation. Now that seems a little difficult for us to understand because him being God beforehand, wasn't he exalted already? And the answer is yes, but there's something a little different this time. Dr. Beakey says, in Christ's state of exaltation, the person who has always been God is honored as God, though he is now also a man. Do you know that when Christ took upon himself human nature, he adds humanity to his being, that he is now forever the God-man. So as the Lord has highly exalted him now, the Father has highly exalted him as he now sits on his cosmic throne. He's exalting him now, not just as the Son of God from all eternity, but now he is exalting him as Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who is made man. He bestows on him the name which is above every name. And that name is Lord. It is the Greek word 
kurios, which is the equivalent of the Old Testament word that we shared with you earlier of Adonai, that he is our sovereign. He is the master. And as we look to the baby in a manger, all of that, we need to keep our eyes moving throughout his incarnation and to see him now, not as just a baby in a manger, but to see him now as the exalted Christ who sits on his throne, ruling and reigning with the Father, who is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, sitting at the right hand of the Father, gradually putting his enemies under his feet until the consummation of all things. We need to make sure our eyes focus there. The Dutch reformer, Wilhelmus Albrackel, he says, That is the beginning of heaven, where the beholding of Christ and his glory will be the eternal joy and occupation of the elect. So as, as we do this time of year, don't just focus on the baby in the manger, but focus on the one who came in the fulfillment of God's faithfulness, but to see what he did, that he actively fulfills the law of God perfectly, throughout his entire life so that when we believe that his perfection and righteousness is imputed to us as if we had done it so that the apostle paul says in romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 1 here's what he says whereas the law beforehand had condemned us he says in romans 8 chapter uh, chapter 8 verse 1 therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Because he fulfills the law of God perfectly. His righteousness is imputed to you so that it is if you had perfectly kept the law of God. So we look to his life, we look to his death when he satisfies the justice of God against sin as the father. The the very pains of hell, as we've talked about before, that the unbelieving will endure, but to a greater degree upon Christ Jesus was poured out on him, poured out upon him during his agonizing time on the cross to where he satisfies the justice of God. He's raised conquering death, giving us the promise of eternal life. And he he is the exalted Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father. The very thing that he offers us is not just the benefits of being being redeemed in the sense of just just missing missing out on the, the wrath of God. It's not about necessarily having peace with God. These are great benefits of the gospel, but the the great prize and the great uh, the it's, when you're talking about Christ in the great treasure, you're talking about him. Not the benefits of what he gives, but you're talking about him. He is the great treasure. He is the great prize. And what is freely offered to you is, yes, eternal life. It is reconciliation with God. It is peace with God. And it doesn't come at any expense to you. As he says, come and buy you who don't have any money. It is a free offer of the gospel, is the free offer of Christ. And he says, here's what I've done. Believe. Here's what I did for you. Believe. 
That's the good news of the gospel. There isn't all these, I have to check this box and check that box and check that box. I have to make sure that I pray enough. I have to make sure that I read my Bible enough. I have to make sure I do works of righteousness enough. I, I could never do enough. You could never do enough. That's why the good news is, is this, that Christ did all that was necessary. Christ prayed enough. Christ served enough. Christ obeyed enough. So that the free offer of the gospel would come to us who believe. So as we look to the manger, we're looking to what he brought to us, which was himself. So at this time of year then, since this is a season for joy, then take joy in the Lord and in what he did on your behalf. It's the season of giving. So as you recognize what Christ has given to you, which was himself, then you give, other, give to others. You serve others. You look out for their interest. Christ has left us an example to follow. And by the Spirit of God who resides within us, we can carry these things out. Because he enables us to do so. It's the time of year of joy and giving. So by all means, dear friends, let us do these things in the Lord and rejoice in him throughout this Christmas season. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that it brings to mind of Christ coming in the flesh, giving of himself. Oh, Father, let us indeed rejoice before you this day. Let us honor you. We pray, Father, that you would be exalted in our lives, that we would look to the exalted Christ as our source of peace and joy. Do you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.